Well, it's great to be back with you as uh, I was absent last week due to illness, and that's always a good opportunity to just reflect on your own mortality as you're up doubled over in the middle of the night seeing the food you ate three days earlier. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad to be back, feel like I've uh, been resurrected, and so it's great to be here with you this morning. And this morning we're continuing our study of the book of Ephesians, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Ephesians. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 33. And our subject matter this morning is going to be Christian marriage. It's going to be Christian marriage. And if I wanted to be popular, I might not want to teach this text today. And if I were going to teach it, there would be the temptation not to teach what God is in this text. So it's a very controversial text. It's always been, uh, but not for the same reasons. So it's always been a controversial text, but not for the same reasons. And I do realize um, that what I'm going to cover this morning is probably going to be very emotionally loaded uh, for a lot of you in, in different ways, and I want to acknowledge that. And um, depending on where you're from, maybe what cultural background, depending on your age, if you're younger or older, you might have different feelings uh, regarding this. Some people have very, very strong um, traditional American values, and so they anything that doesn't quite fit that, if there's a change, they see that as all bad maybe without the ability to nuance according to Scripture. And then certainly uh, younger generations are people that maybe come from uh, different social backgrounds, um, kind of see in this text something that needs to be done away with um, and that new norms need to be established. So I realize this can be a very emotional text. I also realize it can be polarizing in another way. Um, you know, when you come to church and you're not married and they're going to have the married talk, you're kind of like, well, is this for me? And I just want to affirm right now, it's absolutely for you. Um, if you're single and if you're ever going to be married, obviously this would apply to you and will make decisions on who you're going to marry and when you're going to do it, depending on what God says here. Even for those that are not called to be married, what we're going to see is that what God says about human marriage ultimately points to a relationship that you can have right now. And we also know that furthermore, marriage is to some degree or another always a social project. And so marriage, if others don't support the same vision and definition and everything of it, even if you're not the one getting married, what you think about it, your opinion of marriage matters. And so I just want to make sure that at the outset, some of you aren't turning off the light switch and going, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll wake up next week when it applies to me. No, I promise this absolutely applies to all of us. It's much bigger than us. It has to do with our entire culture and our church as well. So if you would, please follow along with me now as we seek to hear the Word of God on this topic of marriage. I'm going to start one verse earlier. I don't know if I put that on there. I'm going to start in verse 21. This is God's Word. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, 
just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you this morning and I just ask for your blessing on this time of teaching. Lord, I just pray for the ability to be faithful to your word. The ability to be faithful to your heart behind the word. I pray for open hearts and minds that would receive what you have to say, that we would be open-handed with our preconceptions, no matter what they might be. We pray that your Spirit would be able to show us why this matters. We pray that as a church, as a community, that we would support one another in what you want to do through human marriage and ultimately through the Gospel itself. We pray now for a blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Well, a few years ago in the Huffington Post, a therapist by the name of Tammy Nelson, she's got a PhD, uh, wrote an article called The Future of Marriage. And it's a good article. It's, it's definitely eye-opening. It's worth reading. Um, I thought of reading the whole thing. It'd just probably take a little bit too much time. But let me just read her intro in the first paragraph. So the article's called The Future of Marriage. And, and she says, right now, about 40% of Americans think marriage is obsolete as a concept. 40% of Americans think marriage is obsolete. They are not sure it is necessary at all. As a result, less couples than ever before are married, and marriage rates will continue to decline into the future. The definition of marriage has changed dramatically in just the past 10 years. In the way we think of and define marriage, there has never been a more intrinsic and foundational change happening than right now. Our structural definition of the legal, emotional, and sexual act of committed partnership is on the cusp of something totally new. There is such a major shift in how we define marriage that it can be compared to the 1960s and 70s sexual revolution 
where we saw all boundaries and mores and values challenged and struck down at their cultural roots. Now, in this century, we see a new era. The 2010s and the 2020s are witnessing a revolution in marriage that has never been experienced before. And there is more to come. So that's just the intro of her article. And she cites all kinds of things, such as one of the things she thinks will happen in addition to the fact that less and less people will get married, more will cohabitate, birth rates uh, are plummeting and will plummet amongst the majority population of America. But she talked about how future marriage contracts will most likely uh, be renewable. Um, so they will be, I don't know why I, I, I like sports, so my immediate thought is an athlete who signs a deal with you know, the, the angels for five years and you're, you're, you're faithful to this contract for five years, but at the end of the five years, you re-examine the relationship and you go, do we want to do this? And, she, and she's not kidding. Apparently, this is something that in, in major urban areas is actually already taking place. People are actually saying, I love you till death do us part, but uh, we have a five-year expiration on that. So people are actually considering this because it's becoming less and less conceivable to do marriage the way it used to be done, especially in its, um, its sense of permanency. So that's the cultural context into which I speak this morning. And it's true that anyone who is taught the Christian view of marriage is always doing so in a cultural context. That means that nobody hears the Word of God purely as the Word of God with, with no prior experience or expectation or ideas of how it ought to be. And sometimes cultural experience, social experience, your life speaks so loudly to you that when you come to the Bible, you can't hear what it says. Or when you hear what it says, you, you kinda, you, it can't mean what it sounds like and it's got to mean something else. Again, that's always been an issue. And this is why historians of preaching experts in the area of preaching have referred to the supremacy of the text. And what they mean by the supremacy of the text, that the text of Scripture must be supreme in preaching, is because if it's not, then my opinion overwhelms what God wants to say. And I have experience, and I have backgrounds, and I have concern, I have fears, and I have you know, leanings and all that kind of stuff. And if the text is not allowed to speak, if, if we're not rigorous in our study of the text, examining what it says, that I, that I actually am looking at the grammar, and how is it put together, and, and all this, and how is it fitting into this, and, and if I say it means this, what does that do to this text here and this text here? We're making sure we're hearing God and not the sound of our own culture. It's very, very important that we do that. And so I strive to the best of my ability to try to do that this morning. And in doing that, there's probably a lot of things I won't talk about. There's a lot of things I, I don't have time to talk about. There's a lot of things that, to be honest, are open to discussion. Because the Bible doesn't talk about everything we would want to possibly know. And I think there's actually good reason for that, as we'll cover this morning. So what I wanted to do is basically define what the biblical vision of marriage is. I want to give you a single thesis statement which I will unpack in three points. So here is my thesis statement. 
the purpose of marriage is to glorify God through worshipful submission to the pattern of the Gospel as divinely empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let me say it one more time. The purpose of marriage is to glorify God through the means of worshipful submission to the pattern of the Gospel as divinely empowered by the Holy Spirit. So I want to break that up into three points and talk about each one. So, number one, the purpose of marriage is to glorify God. Look at verse 32. Paul says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. One of the things that leaps out to you when you study this text, if you want to know what the Bible has to say about marriage, and you're thinking it's going to be like a manual. Right? That's kind of what we all want. Like, give me an instruction manual on how to do marriage. One of the things that kind of leaps out to you, rather than a bunch of practical tools, it primarily speaks of Jesus. Did you notice that? It's primarily about Jesus. His body. We are members of His body. His flesh. You're like, wait a minute. It's taking marriage language and it's actually talking about Jesus. That Jesus has wedded Himself to the church and the church is one with Him. And that Christ is the Savior of the church so that He can sanctify the church and present her to Himself as spotless and without blame. The whole thing is tied into Jesus. So Paul says, what I'm really talking about when I talk about marriage is not marriage. What I'm really talking about is the Gospel. That's primarily what I'm talking about. For the Bible, for the New Testament, marriage is not ultimate. God is. God is what is ultimate. For most of us, including Christians, I think, if we're honest, if I asked you what the purpose of marriage is, I said the purpose of marriage is sit you down before me and write it out. How many people really, oh, the reason I'm getting married is to glorify God? I don't think that's true most of the time. I mean, it could be in there, but I think it's the purpose of marriage is to satisfy my emotional longing for, for union with this person. Right? Isn't that why most modern westerners get married is love and by the way uh, there's a 448 page book called marriage a history that i started reading for this absolutely fascinating one of the things that leaps out you is that the idea of marrying for love is a new idea that's only been around for a few hundred years marriage was primarily an economic and social tool throughout much of history that's what it was about the idea that we're going to marry for emotional feelings is new. And I'm not even saying that's entirely wrong. I think there's something that's redeemable from that and even right. But the problem is we now almost worship our feelings. And that marriage is largely now, or at least what drives us into it, is sentimentality. We love these feelings and we actually expect them to be there at all times. And if it ever goes away, then we think the marriage is gone. But that is all predicated on the idea that the purpose of marriage is to preserve and bottle up these feelings I have for you and you for me in a little bubble, in a little bottle, in a box for the rest of my life. 
oh, and by the way, I know I need Jesus to help make that possible because life's hard and, and I have problems. No. The purpose of marriage is to glorify God. And I think this is one of the most important things I can possibly say about it. Because it, marriage points to something that is greater than itself. The Bible teaches that marriage is not eternal. It's supposed to be lifelong, yes, at its best. It's supposed to be lifelong, but it is not eternal. Those who worship marriage, they think of it as eternal, and there's even stories about people who are dying and they're reunited and they're like married again. But Jesus had to say something about that. He said, in the resurrection, you will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Marriage will be over. Because it was a temporary thing, never the real thing. It was a temporary thing meant to point to what was most real, which was not the human institution of marriage, but, the, but Christ and His church. And one day when we are with God, we will see the thing we truly longed for with all of our hearts. So the purpose of marriage is to glorify God. And I say this too, not just from verse 32, but let me give you four other verses from Ephesians. Not even the rest of the New Testament. There's plenty. But four other verses from Ephesians that remind us that the purpose of all of life and therefore marriage is to glorify God. Ephesians 1, 3-6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace. Chapter 1, verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be or exist to the praise of His glory. Chapter 1, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, now to Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us to Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Marriage is a tool. It's a means. It's an instrument of doing something else. For many of us, certainly for our culture, it is collapsed into something else. It's a way of preserving emotional feelings. It's a way of, I, I don't want to be lonely and I think this will help, although I'll point out some of the loneliest people I know are married people. So some people will marry thinking that will take care of my loneliness. This will give me a status that I think I need in order to have dignity or worth. People will marry for all kinds of reasons. But the reason for us even if you're a traditionalist and a conservative and you believe in, in these roles in marriage, if you don't get that the purpose of those is to glorify God, you will misuse even the right biblical roles. 
There's many people who believe in traditional values, but they don't believe that the purpose is to glorify God. And believe me, that will have an impact on how they live out their roles. So it is vital that we understand the purpose of marriage is to glorify God. Second, the purpose of marriage is to glorify God through, how do we do it? Through worshipful obedience to the pattern of the Gospel. For most people, marriage is merely a humanly devised social institution that is fluid in both its definition and purpose, and therefore, and perhaps must, be changed to fit changing times. But the vision of Scripture presented here is quite different. Marriage is not created by man. It is created by God. It is not rooted in the fluctuating whims of a particular culture, whether ancient or modern. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what marriage is all about. It is rooted not in these whims, but in the heart of God. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is God's mission to redeem everything on earth as it is in heaven. And this includes marriage. And so for Paul here, the purpose and definition of marriage is not tied to Greco-Roman culture. That's an argument against this text. Well, Paul was a culturally constrained man. He couldn't speak from outside his own particular historical circumstance. In other words, you deny revelation. That God can speak from outside. That God is transcendent. And that He's not able to speak in through finite human agency. So that's a big scriptural revelation problem. But that's the idea. But what I want to say is Paul was not confined to that. And if you do historical study, that's actually very, very clear. Even from a non-Christian perspective. If you do your research. However, Paul's vision of marriage is not tied to 20th or 21st century or should I say 1950s version of America either. This is what many people do to the text of Scripture. Nor is it bound to the Mosaic Covenant of the Old Testament as though it was once valid biblically, but now it is not. Rather, what Paul did here in this passage is he rooted the covenant of marriage in the very image of the Gospel story itself. The relationship of Christ and the church. So he didn't appeal to something that's here one day and gone tomorrow, that's valid for one time, not for another. No, he roots it in the eternal Gospel of God. Something that transcends culture, though actively changes within it. And so for Christians, the pattern of marriage set for husbands and wives is rooted in a culturally transcendent reality and is thus applicable to every generation of Christian husbands and wives. So I said, I used the phrase worshipful submission. I say that because although a typical study Bible may divide this section on marriage from the previous section, so even in the Bible I have before me, again, this is not a bad thing. It, it is what it is. It's helpful for reference. But I have a break between verses 21 and 22. Take a look, see if you do. 
And in between 21 and 22, I have this uh, heading that's in italics, and it says marriage, Christ and the church. Now, what I want to say is, though that, that's fine for reference, these two sections go directly together. They are absolutely thematically and grammatically linked together, and I think that matters. I say that because the, this section on marriage is not separate from the previous section on worship. Look at verse 21. It says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So the word submission in the marriage text is directly connected with the preceding text, which is a section on worship. And if you look at, namely, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. So what's the connection? What does singing songs in church and worshiping God and praising God and gathering for the Word and, and tithing and doing communion and baptism, what does all that have to do with what you do when you go home and how you arrange marriages and how we communicate the meaning and value and purpose of marriage to the culture? What does that have to do with it? And the connection is worship. Paul considers all of this to be worship. Worship is not just what you do on Sunday. It's how you live out your life. If you are not worshiping in your relationships, if you're not worshiping God, if you're not obeying God, then you are violating the principle of worship even on a Sunday if you're here and if you sing the songs. Now, some people would say, well, if that's true, then why should I be here? I can just go worship God uh, with my, my spouse down at the beach getting breakfast in Laguna. That, that's worship. Now, I'll just do that instead of Sunday. There is a difference between what we're doing here and living this out in your marriage. I would call what we do on Sundays centering worship. I call it centering worship because we are focused explicitly on Christ the gospel, and the church. We're making clear what our life of worship is all about, and we're being equipped to live a life of worship. If you do not engage in centering worship, and you just go out there and you say, hypothetically, oh, I'm just going to worship God with my wife today. We're just going to stay at home and just worship God together alone. There's a very good chance that's exactly not what you're doing. You're just hanging out and having fun and stamping a little Christian label on it. So it's important, and, and not you, your worship in your job, and your worship in your relationships, don't replace this. But this doesn't replace that either. So the connection is worship. And so when I talk about worshipful submission, that's what it's ultimately about. It's not just about filling gender roles and just fitting some idea of the way we think it ought to be according to a certain tradition or whatever. It has to do with worship. It's not about your husband or your wife or our culture or saving America or making it better. It has to do with, do you want to worship God? That's the question. Do I want to worship God or do I not? For Paul, that's what is at stake. Which means conversely, our refusal to live out our relationships according to God's Word is a refusal to worship. In addition, verse 21 teaches us that submitting is an attitude that all Christians, men and women, Husbands and wives are to adopt as a way of life. 
Notice that. Verse 21, submitting to one another. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. So in other words, when we come to husbands and wives and we hear this word submission, and I don't know that anyone likes that word, right? It's kind of a, an, it has negative connotations for us. Although in the ancient world, it didn't have negative connotations. It's just, this is a part of reality. You've got to relate to structures of some kind. Unless you're in anarchy, you will have structure of some kind. And that's simply the word we use to talk about how you rightly relate to the structures that are. But submission for Christians is a way of life for all of us. This is not just, oh, hey, this word applies to wives and and no one else. No, it applies to all of you this morning. We are all to be living lives of worshipful submission to God. And to be honest, if you don't want to do that, you don't want to be a Christian because that's what it's about. Coming to Christ is is saying, if I can boil it down, you're right, God, and I'm wrong. That's what it's about. It's confessing. It's repenting. It's saying, your way is right and mine's wrong. I, I lived my life up until this point the opposite. I said, you're wrong. I'm right. But I'm at a place where finally... Life, circumstances, my own heart, the the mystery of the human soul and the Spirit of God at work and and interacting. And I'm at a place where I'm willing to allow that metanoia, that repentance, that change of mind to take place where I can fundamentally say, you are right. And I'm the one that's wrong. That's for everybody. Married, not married, young, old, doesn't matter. We all are called to live lives of worshipful submission. And this is an attitude. This is an attitude. It's just the way we are. This is even without a particular structure. It's our attitude. We revere one another. Another human being made in the image of God. Another human being that Christ has redeemed from the auction block of sin with His own blood. And I want to honor that through mutual submission. It's an attitude of the church. So when we come into the specific instructions, because there is an order in marriage, and I know having said all that still doesn't matter. Some people won't like that. I understand that. I really do. But having said that, we're going to come into the roles of marriage. But remember, what he said in verse 21 didn't magically go away. If wives actually submit as we're going to talk about and husbands actually lead as we're going to talk about, there's going to be mutual submission happening. That's a part of the structure. It doesn't violate it. Some people say, well, if you're going to submit to one another, you throw out the roles. That's not what Paul did. Or they say, if you're going to have the roles of the husband's leading and the wife's submitting, you've got to throw out the mutual submission. That's not what Paul did. For Paul, somehow, these go together as worshipful submission to God. And so there's nothing strange or unusual at all about this text. As Christians, worshipful submission is at the heart of Christian worship. So let's get into a little bit on the roles because they're there. Paul talks about it. Now, if you are married, if you're going to be married, if people in your lives are married, your sons, your daughters, grandchildren, whoever it is, our culture, because you have a voice. And remember, as I said, marriage is a public institution. It's a social institution. And so what you think matters with respect to other people as well. 
We have to come together and agree on marriage socially. So, first off, how do wives submit to the Lord in Christian marriage? Look at verses 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So what we're called to do in Christian marriage is image the gospel. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to image the gospel. So wives, in imaging the gospel in marriage, wives are told to submit to their own husbands as the leaders of the marriage. Now, I can point out, if, if it's helpful, this is not the word for obey. This is hupatasso. Hupakuo is a word used with respect to children. So there's a distinction. It is, wife is not obeying like a child. Now, in some cultures at some times, they've practiced the latter, haven't they? Some cultures, the wife has, was treated like a child with no opinion, no ability to think for herself, no constructive criticism of any kind. She had to just obey like a child. That's not the word Paul uses. He clearly uses a different word here than he does in the very next chapter. That indicates there is a difference. In addition, as I've said, there's already the mutual submission at work. So whatever that means, it's not blind obedience. The husband still has an attitude of mutual submission towards his own wife. But there's this basic idea that she's going to submit willingly to the leadership of her husbands. By speaking this way to the wife, wives are treated as dignified individuals who have the power to choose whether or not they will submit to their husbands. It does not tell husbands to submit their wives. It is something that God speaks directly to the wife through Scripture and says that this is the path you choose. It's not something a man is called to do. Once again, sometimes men have done that. Whether they were trying to be faithful to the Word or not. And many times people say they are trying to be faithful to the Word, and I don't think so. They're trying to twist it to their own advantage. Husbands don't submit their wives. It's wives that submit themselves. It is a decision that they make. This text is not a text about male-female relationships in general. That's another big mistake people have made. They go, oh, so the wife submits to the husband, therefore women can't work outside the home. Or women can't run a company. Or a woman couldn't be the president or anything else. That is not what this text teaches. This is unique to one woman and one man in their marriage to one another. A man's wife is not submitting to any other man. No other man's just because he's a man. So sometimes people have extended that and there's some reasoning behind this. One of the things that it, it becomes so prevalent 
in the Christian church and even in the Jewish tradition is God says something. He says a rule. We observe that there's a tendency to break the rule. And so what's one of the common things we do? Create a rule God never said to protect the ones He did. It kind of makes sense. At first, that, that's like, okay, yeah, the, God actually said this, um, but we, we notice there's a tendency not to do it, so let's create another rule, and that'll protect this. What's the problem? Shortly thereafter, you observe there's a tendency to break that one as well. And then you get another one. And then you get another one, and another one, and another one. And then you basically arrive at Jesus' day, where Jesus was seen as a sinner to the Pharisees. Not because he ever broke a single rule of God. Never did. In fact, he was the only one who perfectly fulfilled it. But he was constantly transgressing, in quotes, all the other rules that were set up to protect the actual rules. So we have to be very careful that we do not take specific commands of God in Scripture and make unbiblical applications of them. People have used this text of husbands and wives, and that's who it's for, and they have extended it to say, and this is why, you know, women in general, when you're out at the market, you need to submit to (laughs) the man at the checkout stand, and he's going to make you get to the back of the line or whatever. No, that's not there at all. So wives submit to their husbands as unto the Lord in Christian marriage as an act of worshipful obedience. How do husbands submit to the Lord then? And notice I say that. How do husbands submit? They do. How do husbands submit to the Lord in worshipful obedience? Look at verses 25-29. through Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her, that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the Word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. One of the things that jumps out If you study Greco-Roman households, because there's similarities between what Paul says in this section, and there's a glaring, glaring difference. What you won't find in the Greco-Roman world in what they call household codes is instructions to the husband. Because they had none. Roman patriarchs were actually technically not considered familias, They were not members in the family. They were members over the family. And instructions about wives and children were for them to impose on those over them. They were technically over and outside of the family. The idea that a husband had any obligation at all was utterly foreign. So the idea that these instructions on marriage are archaic and it's Paul being a slave to his culture All that shows is you don't know what it was like in the Greco-Roman world of the first century because this would have been controversial and appalling. 
You, how dare you subject the man of the house to household rules? He has no rules. How dare you, Paul? What? You're going to subject him to rules and you're going to order him? It's a command. You're going to order him to love his wife? How dare you, Paul? This is counterculture. You're going to ruin marriage. Traditional marriage as we know it, it's going to be ruined, Paul. Thanks a lot. Because this is never how it was. And that's absolutely true. This is never how it was. No husband had any obligation to his wife of any kind, must let to love her. So imaging the gospel in marriage, husbands are told to provide Christ-like leadership to their wives through sacrificial service. Some people hear this again and their emotions are, oh, the man is the boss of the wife. And it's like, yeah, it sounds real wonderful. You get to lead through dying to yourself. You get to lead through laying your life down. One of the main reasons for knee-jerk reactions against these roles is the abuse of power by men toward women in previous generations. And therefore, the assumption that the Bible is affirming of such unbiblical forms of leadership is wrong. The Bible teaches that Jesus completely transformed the meaning and nature of leadership. So when we hear the man is the leader, we often immediately impose what I saw growing up. It's one of the most obvious things in the world to do. You probably have to be trained not to do that. This is what leadership is. Or you spend X number of years out in the professional world and you had leaders that you worked under and that's how they were. Jesus transforms all of our conceptions of leadership. Anything that we're going to bring to this text about what it means to be a leader needs to be wiped away and we must start fresh with Jesus. Jesus said, if anyone wants to be great, let him become the servant of all. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so if the pattern of Jesus' leadership is the standard and goal of the husband's leadership in Christian marriage, then such assumptions outside of that are negated by Scripture. You will notice that while basic roles in an enacted theological drama are provided, all of the details regarding how that works out are curiously absent. The reason for this is that how this works out in a given marriage will not be a one-size-fits-all situation. How any particular husband and wife work this out may differ from others. But where Christian couples should be unified is both in the vision and the basis and the purpose for Christian marriage. We're going to have different personalities. We're going to go about things differently. That's fine. I think that's why Scripture doesn't say, here's exactly what this means. Here's exactly what you've got to do. Here's exactly the, the way you defer in every possible real-life practical situation. Here's exactly the way I want you to leave. Because you are different. And the Bible recognizes that. As long as we're together and as couples, you go back to this text and you say, are we seeking to fulfill this vision? 
and to speak to one, one another lovingly as co-heirs of grace, fellow disciples, pilgrims on the road, aiming at God's glory, we sit down and say together, are we fulfilling this vision? It's not just sit down, are we happy? That's the normal conversation. I like this, I like this, I don't like this, I'm not as happy. The goal is not that. It's to glorify God and this is how we do it. So we sit down and we say, are we being faithful to Jesus in the marriage that He's given us? Is He getting out of us what He has put in? That is our job. I like how Eugene Peterson in his message, it's not really a translation, it's a paraphrase, okay? But this is how he paraphrased this section. Just listen. He does a great job getting the gist of it. He reads this whole passage this way. Out of respect for Christ, be courteously reverent to one another. Wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that shows your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to his church. Not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises such leadership, wives should likewise submit to their husbands. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church. A love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring out the best of her dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor since they're already one in marriage. No one abuses his own body, does he? No, he feeds and pampers it. That's how Christ treats us, the church, since we are part of his body. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and cherishes his wife. No longer two. They become one flesh. This is a huge mystery, and I don't pretend to understand it all. What is clearest to me is the way Christ treats the church. And this provides a good picture of how each husband is to treat his wife, loving himself in loving her, and how each wife is to honor her husband. The result of such a marriage is that a living parable or enactment of the gospel is taking place within the building block of every church and every society. It is one of the key elements by which God brings about the first fruits of new creation here and now. And my last point is as divinely empowered by the Holy Spirit. Briefly look at verse 18. Paul says, And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. The command to be filled with the Spirit is the commanding verb of the entire text. In other words, all that followed in our text this morning, including both the corporate worship with singing of songs, as well as husbands and wives in marriage, proceeds out from the Holy Spirit's enabling. We are not simply left to our own personalities or efforts, nor society's norms, but are enabled by the Holy Spirit to grow into this vision for marriage which God has for His people. And conversely then, a refusal to honor God's vision for marriage is a sure way to quench the work of the Holy Spirit in your life so that the Spirit is grieved and spiritual weakness will set in to other areas of our lives. It is my prayer that as individuals, whether single, 
or married, would do all that we can to see that God gets the glory he deserves in human marriage. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for giving us wisdom and direction and guidance. And regardless of our our feelings on this, whether we welcome this, whether we push back, whether it's it's a little bit of both. Some of it is is beautiful and attractive and other parts we, we simply don't like. I just thank you that you have spoken. When the world is saying one thing one day and another the next and it's constantly changing, something as foundational to human society and family and stability as marriage is constantly up in the air. But your word is not up in the air. You have spoken. The Bible says that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And so we thank you that this morning you have given us a firm foundation for life. And we pray that with all that we have, we would worship you this morning. That the reason we are here, though we have needs, we have desires, all these things, but Lord, I pray right now, true spiritual worship would happen. Whatever sub-motivations we might have, I pray they would pale in comparison now as we seek to worship you, to glorify you, to give all the honor and praise that is due your holy name. Lord, you made the world through Christ and for his glory. You're redeeming us out of every tribe, tongue, and nation for your glory. And we pray that we would be the first fruits this morning of those who praise your name. We ask for a blessing on this time of response. In Jesus' name, amen.